Welcome to The Hub Dialogues, a podcast that celebrates big thinkers and bold ideas about a better future for all of us. I'm Rudyard Griffiths, the Executive Director of The Hub, Canada's leading source for analysis and insights on public policy. Our goal at The Hub is to escape the opinion bubbles of conventional conversation and prod our popular discourse back to the issues and ideas that can shape our collective future. On the Hub Dialogues, you'll hear Sean Spear, our editor-at-large, in conversation with some of the world's sharpest minds and brightest thinkers about the issues and ideas they're passionate about and that they think we should spend more time focusing on. The Hub's podcasts are generously supported by the Ira Gluskin and Maxine Granosky gluskin Charitable Foundation. Enjoy this Hub Dialogue. Welcome to Hub Dialogues. I'm your host, Sean Spear, Editor-at-Large at The Hub. I'm honored to be joined today by Sophie Brickman, an American-based columnist at The Guardian, whose writings have appeared in The New Yorker, The New York Times, The Wall Street Journal, and various other major publications. She's also the author of the fascinating book, Baby Unplugged, One Mother's Search for Balance, Reason, and Sanity in the Digital Age. The book, which is one part deep dive into the research, and one part personal memoir, is now out in paperback. I should say its insights about babies and tech have been valuable to me and my family as we raise a rambunctious 20-month-old. Sophie, thanks for joining us at Hub Dialogues, and congratulations on the book. Thank you so much for having me. I heard you say that you wrote the whole book to prove your tech-savvy husband wrong. Uh, What do you mean? (laughs) Um, so my husband is a tech guy. We, you know, shortly before we got married, we lived out in San Francisco. I was a reporter out there and he was, um, uh, working at a startup. Um, then he founded his own company and now he invests. And so he is a big believer in the power of technology to just make everybody's life better. Um, and I am a, a, you know, skeptic, I guess, when it comes to that kind of stuff. And so when, you know, our oldest was born, she's now six, Um, he, you know, the book opens with a scene that, that, you know, really did happen, um, where he had brought home some sort of beta stage, uh, tracker for her. She was, you know, two, two days old, three days old. They had just let us home from the hospital. Um, I'm the youngest. I don't have, you know, younger cousins. I did. I'd never really held a baby before. I didn't know the first thing of, of what to do. And he said, oh, we can just, you know, smack this thing on her and it'll just make sure that her heart, uh, is beating throughout the night. And I thought, like, okay, uh, sure, that sounds like a good a good backup. Um, and then, of course, you know, the the alarm went off from this device in the middle of the night. Uh, we didn't know why. It turned out it had lost connection to the Wi-Fi, um, but it made me very uh, nervous, and it made me very um, attuned to just sort of how thoughtless I had been about the technology in my house. Um, and sort of how appealing and shiny all of it can be, particularly for young. Uh, underslept parents. And so um, Dave, uh, who I adore, and we have a wonderful, very strong marriage, um, sort of became a good foil to me because he, you know, he kept bringing home various technological things. He, you know, he grew up loving playing video games and, and you know, loving watching movies and all these things. And so kind of together, um, we were two good sides of a coin, I thought, to, to, to explore this area that is very uh, important for many parents. You've also said, Sophie, that we know our children better than Silicon Valley does. What do you mean by that? And what is the implication of that simple yet kind of profound insight? 
I mean, I think, um, and you know, you can, you can tell me otherwise, but I think that there is sort of a, an understanding that when you become a parent, when you certainly, when you become a mother, um, but when you become a parent, there is this understanding in society that you just know what to do. You have an instinct, you have a gut, uh, your kid is crying. You know that that cry is a real cry. You know that that cry is a manipulative cry. You know that they're hungry. I didn't know any of these things. And, um, you know, Silicon Valley is is very, very persuasive at, at telling you um, that you, you know, you're not getting the support you deserve, which is true, um, and that technology can help, which is true in moderation. Um, and so I think, you know, over the course of reporting this book, I sort of learned how to find my gut, which I, which I didn't know. And, and certainly when kids get older, it becomes easier in a lot of ways. Um, and then challenging later, which, you know, I'm not yet at that phase uh, when, when my daughter is going to be asking for a phone and, you know, all of those horrible um, and kind of nerve, nerve wracking parameters of, of social media. We're still like kind of in the, in the sweet phase of all of it. Um, but, but I would say that, Silicon Valley makes a very strong case that you need a lot of these gadgets and it's very easy to buy into that line, line of thinking. Yeah, let me pick up on, on that point. Something I thought a lot about as I read the book, so much of the technology geared towards babies is, as you outline, for monitoring sleep, weight, breathing, and any other number of things that can be measured. You spoke to a pediatrician for the book who said that if a child really needs such precise monitoring he or she should probably be in the hospital. Do you want to talk about what's going on here? Do you think that parents have an innate desire for this type of comprehensive monitoring? Or is it a demand that's been created by supply and effective marketing? What's the chicken and egg here? I mean, I think it's a very complicated and important question. And I think it's a little of both, um, which may be an unsatisfying answer. But I kind of went into the weeds of neurology to try to figure out, like, what is it about my need to be monitoring these things like what is it deep in my fish brain that has been you know you know over years um you know made me want to collect data and in fact yes like that is why we have risen to the top of the food chain um evolutionarily you know we have an adaptive trait which is to to collect knowledge and synthesize it the issue is that before technology, before you were able to get however many hundreds of thousands of millions of hits on a you know given question that you, that you lob out into Google, you had a finite amount of information that you would see that was essentially streaming at you when you walked around the village square now or the forest or wherever it was. Um, we The technology has, has developed so quickly that our brains are catching up. Um, so we're kind of, you know, attuned to collect all this information and crunch it and kind of make um, mad, make, make uh, reason out of madness or, you know, order out of chaos. Um, but that's a real fool's errand. So I think that's part of it. I think that, you know, we have always wanted to do this, but the introduction of technology has made it particularly exacerbated and kind of turned it all up to an 11. Um, in terms of the need being created by marketing, like, yeah. For sure. Like, do you need to be monitoring your child's heart rate if they are healthy and have been released from the hospital? No. And, you know, I put a, put a little anecdote in the book, too. I spoke to a woman who had a very, very premature baby um, where she was in the NICU for months and the nurses were around the clock monitoring her kid. And then one day they were like, oh, she's fine. She can go home. And my friend was like, wait a second. I have had you know, around the clock professional care, um, you know, the child's heart would stop occasionally and they would you know, pat her back into breathing. I mean, like really, really tough things to be looking at and handling. 
And she said various pieces of technology really gave me a lot of calm. Um, so I can see that there are cases where the need is is filled by tech and and that and can be wonder wonderful. I think for the vast majority of our very anxious parent cohort, it, it just kind of amps up the anxiety often. One of the ways in which parents use technology is to overcome tantrums, lack of sleep, or or whatever else. You counsel that parents ought to understand that what you call the quote friction of parenting is actually beneficial to parents and children, and we shouldn't always try to manage it with technology. What do you mean, Sophie? Why is it, in effect, good to go through those experiences as opposed to trying to minimize them with technology? I mean, I think my answer, like, frankly, would have been a lot different, you know, before we had our third child and before the middle one stopped sleeping through the night and the older one kept coming into our bed. Like, nobody has slept in this house for months. Um, So, yes, we bring out the iPad more than I would have as a saintly mother of one who, you know, was writing this book and and sitting on her on her soapbox. I think um, I think the point is that a lot of this technology, whether or not it's putting your kid in front of a screen so you can do something else, which is very needed, um, or it's crunching data or gathering information that you, you know, that you find online or through various parents groups, um, a lot of it, uh, it purports to take away any of the effort. Um, that goes into parenting. And often, you know, the hard parts of parenting are sitting by your two-year-old's bed when she won't go to sleep or won't stay asleep at five in the morning. The easier thing to do is to give her an iPad. And I've done that before. And it's okay. And she won't be scarred forever. But I think kind of if you operate under the assumption that you should try to be hacking various moments of parenting and the the, the gritty parts of parenting that take a lot of effort, that's not the right kind of mindset to be going into this kind of amazing adventure with your child and, and you know, your family. I should just say in parentheses, Sophie, that resonates a lot for me, even if I concede that at times I, I turn to cocoa melon and, and other things like that more than I ought to. Another thing in the book that struck me was the way you talked about our experience as parents compared to our, our own parents when it comes to how easy and mindless it is to buy stuff online. It seems like our son has more stuff arriving from Amazon than we do. Do you want to talk a bit about that? What has been the consequence of the ubiquity of online shopping? How has it changed the experience of parenting for better or for worse? I mean, my household would crumble without Amazon and without e-commerce. Like I would, you know, I would be spending my time running from from place to place to get diapers and this and that and the other thing. I think, you know, I talk um, at length in in that chapter about e-commerce, about this the difference between maximizers and satisficers, which is sort of this word that was coined that means sort of settling for good enough. Um, maximizers are, you know, inherently just want to find the absolute best thing. Um, the best pair of jeans, the best bottle, whatever. And the minute you go on Amazon, it's like you type in water bottle for your kid. It's like, do you want the straw? Do you want the spout? Do you want the one that he can hold? And that it then graduates to the sippy cup, to the thing. Um, And it becomes very overwhelming. Um, And so I think like putting parameters on that and really understanding that like, it's okay to just get your kid something that, that does the job and it doesn't have to be the perfect thing. 
you know, I found this with diapers. It's like, do you want the most organic thing or do you want a cough diaper? Do you want a this? And it's like, I don't know, just make a decision and stick with it because you have enough stuff going on in your mind um, already and you shouldn't be wasting your time with it. So like, try to use it to your advantage. As I was preparing for our conversation, I heard you say in another interview, a phrase that stuck with me. You said, quote, kids will find the magic. What did you mean by that? And how, in a good way, is it a distillation of your book? I think, I mean, I, I assume that that was sort of in, in response to a question about play. A lot of the book focused on play. You know, when I wrote the proposal, I was like, I'll just have one chapter on play. But it's like the whole world of a child's life is play. So whether it's play on a screen, whether it's play with blocks or imagination, it's all play. Um, and it's very, very important for kids to play. I spent a lot of time speaking to developmental psychologists about really what is good for children at these very young ages, under the age of four, you know, for sure. Um, and, and boredom is wonderful for children. Um, technology does not let you be bored. That's not the purpose of technology, as any of us know, is when our phones bing and we have some sort of release of, of serotonin and we like can't wait to go look at it. Um, so in terms of kids finding the magic, I think the idea is that if you just sit back for a little bit, if your kid is about to have a tantrum or if your kid looks a little bit bored, just try to let them sit in that for a little bit. And often magic will come out of that. And, and, and what you should know is that in helping them sit in this sort of slightly uncomfortable position where there isn't input streaming at them all the time, they are actually growing in the best way that they can and that you are really being the best parent for them, which I think is what all of this is about. It's like everybody wants to be the best parent they can be. And so if they think that various technology can help them, they'll go for it. Um, you know, but in fact, if you can kind of hold back a little bit and there are absolutely exceptions to this, by and large, kids will make the magic and the fun for themselves in the world. Like they don't need that much extra. I don't know uh, what it's like in your household, Sophie, but we've been receiving since our son was born these boxes from Love Actually. You're probably familiar with them. Or Love Every. This, Love Every, pardon me. Love I'm, Actually is the movie, right? I misspoke. Um, <laughs> and at this point, I think he has more fun with the boxes than he does with the products in the boxes. As you say, he's effectively found the magic in simple things. Absolutely. And I mean, another point about that, I'm not, I'm not sure specifically about that brand, but there are a lot of these sort of toy or play-based company subscription services that will send you um, toys and things that are developmentally appropriate for a given age. So they're going to get little knobbly balls at this age, and they're going to get the like car that goes on the track at this age and, you know, balls that go into whatever it is, puzzles. Um, and I spoke with like, one of the most fascinating lines of my research was kind of understanding different philosophies of play. Um, and there is one philosophy of play called RIE, um, R-E-I, which is, sorry, R-I-E, Resources for Infant Educators. And it's um, a very old philosophy that, um, you know, has a fascinating history. But I spoke to the former president of it who said, you know, kids will make the toy developmentally appropriate for them at that age. So you don't need to be giving them, they haven't like graduated when they're eight months, and they turn nine months. Now they can do this thing. If you give them a ball and some water and a bowl, they will do very different things with it at different ages. Um, and it's just sort of how kids are primed to learn and how to, how they're primed to play. So I think 
you know, the anxiety that various parents have that their kid is falling behind or they're not reaching this stage or that milestone um, is furthered often by this idea that certain toys are for certain ages. It's like the same toy can be played for, for many, many years in different ways. You're one click away from getting access to all The Hub's best analysis and insights. Go to our website, www.thehub.ca, and sign up for our daily email newsletter, Per Diem. Each morning at 7 a.m. Eastern, in your inbox, you'll receive the cutting-edge thinking and analysis of our smartest contributors, all curated for you based on the issues and ideas that are moving the public conversation. Sign up now, free of charge, at www.thehub.ca. Now back to our program. Some of these technologies purport to have educational purposes. Others don't. They're purely for entertainment. You write in the book, though, that even some of the educational products can blur the line with entertainment. Uh, Do you want to talk a bit about this? How should parents think about that line between education and entertainment? I mean, like you said about your son, like he gets various toys in boxes and what he wants to do is get in the box and turn it into a spaceship or a car or a fort or whatever he's doing at this age. Um, I think that this idea of education is a very American idea um, that is very academic. So you want your kids to be learning numbers and colors and shapes and all of these things that are good for them to know. Um, but I don't know that many six-year-olds who don't know what red is. So I think that, you know, this idea that you can educate your child in a very specific way um, is not exactly grounded all the time in science. Um, Developmental psychologists, like I said before, like the best thing for kids to do is free play, read, like read as much as you can to your kids with print books. Like you can never read too much to your child, but like have them run around outside, have them muck around, have them you know, there's tactile stuff involved, there's fine motor skills, there's gross motor skills, that's all really good for this young age. Um, And I think the issue is that particularly when you get into the world of apps, um, and various programming, they have this stamp of approval that says educational. So like you go into the Apple, you know, the, the App Store, and there is four and under educational free content, what is that? And you think, okay, so like, I'm going to do the thing I shouldn't do and put my kid in front of the screen, but it's going to be educational. So it's okay. Um, And some of them are okay, but lots of them, that is a really meaningless title, um, particularly for very young kids. You know, what you want to be looking for. And and I want to be clear, like this book is not anti-tech at all. It's very much kind of a quest to figure out how to get the best technology in front of my kids and how to use it in a way that would make me a better parent and a calmer parent. Um, There are absolutely wonderful programs that, you know, I love to watch with my kid. There are great apps out there. Um, you just have to do the work and and sort of look for various indicators. You shouldn't just trust um, what the app store says, I guess. Let me pick up your point about reading. As you say, uh, Sophie, the book emphasizes the, the value and, and benefits of reading. How does technology affect reading? Is it an impediment or can it help? Well, I mean, there are, there are a few ways to answer that. One is that, you know, in, in the section that I researched about reading, I was focused on ebooks um, because those are kind of a very fun um, addition to the library. And there can be wonderful benefits to ebooks, particularly kind of in, in, in book impoverished places. You can still 
you know, get a tablet and you can get access to lots of children's books. But there's a lot of stuff that happens on the screen that's in addition to the story um, and kind of can distract the child from learning how to read and getting all the benefits that you would get if you just sit with like a big, boring analog book in your lap. Um, and so I think that's one one answer. The other is that there's a question of sort of attention span. So like kids at this very young age, you know, they don't have regulation. They're not, um, it's hard for them to, they're still learning how the world works. So if you are putting very high, fast paced imagery in front of them, it's sort of, it's called, there was a, a, an experiment called, uh, that, that, that came up with this term called the Goldilocks effect or the Goldilocks terminology. I'm not exactly sure. But a doctor who I spoke to at Cincinnati Children's Hospital um, put young, young kids through MRIs. It was one of the first you know, studies to do this, um, trying to figure out if the kid's retention of a given story was best, if it was read in a print book, if it was just oral, so just said, but without any pictures, um, or animated. And what he found was that just oral was too cold, like it was too hard for a young kid to understand what... Uh, you know, a pigeon looked like and pigeon drives a bus. Like you need those pictures so that the kid can put the stuff together. Um, he found that animation was too hot. It was like when, you know, I'm making this up, but like when the pigeon went across the, the screen, it was like they they were focusing on that. They weren't exactly focusing on the comprehension and the absolute perfect just right was a book with pictures. Like you really can't beat that for kids that are, that are, you know, between the ages of zero um, and four or five. We, I should just say, we read the pigeon books here. I think our favorite is that the pigeon finds a hot dog. Um, Love that one. <laughs> do you want to talk a bit, Sophie, about how the book has affected your own parenting? I mentioned uh, in the introduction that it's a combination of a, a deep dive into the research, which is really comprehensive, but also a bit, a bit of a story about your own experience. Do you want to just reflect on how the two essentially come together? Yeah, I mean, I think like to, to underscore the point I said before where this isn't like anti-tech, like I can't be anti-tech because I have three children and I live in New York City. So like, I'm not going to like send my kids out on the farm to play and muck around in the hay. Like I can't do that. Um, and I work and my husband works and we have, we need breaks. And so there are ways now that I use technology where it's more informed. Um, so there are certain, you know, you know, one big takeaway for me was that it's not exactly with a few exceptions, like it's not exactly what you're watching with your kids, it's how you're watching it. So if you watch something with your child, and you enjoy it, and you guys can laugh about it, you can talk about it later, you can put the music on, whatever it is, um, that's wildly more um, beneficial for your kid and more enjoyable for you than if you just stick them in front of something that like you can't, you hate the sound of the music or whatever it is that is going on, which is like so many parents are like, Oh, God, I have to put on X because he loves it. It's like, well, you don't like put on something else. Um, I think for sure, there are good programs and good apps that you can put the kids in front of solo after a certain age. And like, it's been shown to be, you know, not not the same as as running around in the woods with them and not the same as as reading them. But like, I can't do that all the time. So I think it's given me kind of real practical takeaways of how I can use technology to my benefit and to my kids' benefit and not feel as guilty about it. There's such a kind of guilt and shaming culture when it comes to parenting um, that, you know, you're doing it wrong or, or you're not good enough or you're not optimizing this moment the right way. 
It's like, that's all frankly bullshit. Like everyone's doing their best. Um, and I think what I wanted to do is just kind of get through the science so that I could understand what was happening to my kid's brain, try to like really be thoughtful about why I was using the technology and then drill down on what technology would be wonderful um, to use in my house. You mentioned the science and I mentioned earlier just how comprehensive your research is in the book. Is there something that surprised you the most in undertaking the research? Sophie, is there something that, that jumped out at you and, and that has, uh, in effect, changed the way you, you think about these issues with your own children? There, were, there was a section on the book, um, I'm forgetting exactly where it was, but I interviewed a really, really wonderful educator and professor named Walter Gilliam, and he's at Yale. Um, and he does a lot of work um, in China. And what he said to me is he was like, we Americans, like we fund a lot of research into early childhood development and we've kind of come, you know, for years and years and years, we've seen that like open-ended play, free play, um, not drilling kids on academics, all of that stuff is really, really important for young kids and kind of the best way to set them up for success in the future. Um, he said in China, um, they're not funding this research, but they're taking the research and implementing it. And so in China, which you would imagine is sort of, you know, like, you hear about these testing academies, you hear about when the kids get older, it's very, very rigorous and very academic and very cutthroat. And there's a lot of anxiety about it. They start off, um, you know, mandated by the state that their preschools be open, full of open-ended play. Um, there's very little technology. The kids are not drilled in an academic way. And he said, you know, we do all this research, but we don't implement it in, in schools. You know, we cut recess. We're, you know, we're optimizing for, for academics um, at very young ages. He said, you know, that's, that's not really the way to go. And that surprised me because I, you know, I had a, a, an, a, a misunderstanding about how, how Chinese kids were raised. That's fascinating. At, if, at the risk of boring you and some of our listeners, you know, back in 1972, when Canada first played the Soviets in hockey, and you know Canada saw itself as the global, globally dominant hockey nation, the Soviets almost beat us. And one of the things that we discovered after the fact was the way that we trained and practiced was systematized and, and kind of regimented. And the Soviets permitted, especially young players, to be creative and you know, kind of play around with the puck as opposed to thinking in terms of kind of systematic way to play hockey. And I think in a lot of ways, those insights have since been reflected in the way that uh, youth hockey is organized and played in Canada. So it's a, a bit of a tortured analogy, but an interesting insight for sure. You mentioned earlier in the conversation that part of your context as a parent is that you are raising children in a big city. In fact, you grew up in New York and now you're raising your children here. Do you want to talk a bit about what it's like to raise a family in the city? What are the pros and cons from your point of view? I mean, how much time do you have? Um, I think, I mean, it's what I know because I grew up here. I, I live eight blocks from my parents. And so kind of I have this wonderful and very unusual situation where we do kind of have a village um, and the kids are over there, you know, every, every weekend. And, and that's wonderful. Um, I think the benefits of the city, I mean, I, I, we could talk about the education system here. We could talk about a million things, but I think in terms of, you know, the benefits of what the city has to offer, we're trying our best to take, take 
uh, take advantage of them and, and failing, obviously it's like, we don't go to the Met every weekend and take the kids to see, you know, music or whatever. We're just, you know, you know, bumbling through as best as we can. Um, but I think, you know, to bring it back to the book, and like one of the reviewers kind of got me on this and said, you know, like there's the obligatory section about Scandinavia, like as there always is in all of these kids books. And it's like, you know, Scandinavia is this like hallowed, amazing place that has a halo around it. But like, it's kind of true. Like they have these forest schools and the kids run around in the forest and they play and they're not academically pushed until they're seven. They don't learn to read until they're seven. And like, it's much calmer seeming from afar like that, I don't have the, you know, the benefit of being able to partake in, but, you know, we have the benefit of being near all sorts of things that we don't take advantage of, I guess. I don't know. Well, uh, this has been a fascinating conversation about a fascinating book, Baby Unplugged, One Mother's Search for Balance, Reason, and Sanity in the Digital Age. Sophie Brickman, thanks for joining us at Hub Dialogues. It's been a pleasure. Thank you so much. Thank you for listening to this episode of The Hub Dialogues, brought to you by The Hub, Canada's leading source for analysis and insights on public policy. We hope that you enjoyed this episode. Please share your favorite Hub podcast with friends and family, subscribe wherever you get your audio online, and leave us a rating and review. We greatly appreciate your feedback and comments. I'm the Hub's Executive Director, Rudyard Griffiths. The host of today's program was Sean Spear, the Hub's Editor-at-Large. This episode was produced by Amal Atar Guzman. The Hub's audio producers are Alex Glutch and David Matta. The Hub podcasts are generously supported by the Ira Gluskin and Maxine Gronowski-Gluskin Charitable Foundation. Thanks for listening.